I, I always appreciate when the Lord seems to kind of rearrange things for us because um, truth be told, the, the message that was going to be ready for Jonah 4 that we were going to end with today does not fit with Christmas as well as what we're going to talk about today. So another thank you for John for filling in and pushing everything back a week, which, which also worked out perfectly. Um, because, I mean, church, we've, we've been going through Jonah, right? We've, we've spent three or four weeks in Jonah together. And this, I mean, this little tiny book has been powerfully humbling to me because it has really continued to put God's heart for the lost before me. And I don't know what it's, what it's done for you, but it has really continued to just wear on me. What, you know, when God looks at a world that is broken, right? Very clearly broken, very clearly struggling, very clearly we, we want to see things fixed. We want to see, see things restored. He sees the same things that you and I do, right? In fact, this, this was almost like the, uh, it's like why I get mad at people when I see them speeding, because I'm like, do you, you know, do you not see the same things I do? Do you not see the same road conditions, the same warning signs, the same big speed limit sign? We get the same fines. Actually, I've been told my fines are worse with a commercial license. So you guys are probably able to get off a little bit easier than I am if you get caught speeding. You, you see the same things. You go, but, but God, don't you also see this? Like this person is going 100 down 81. This is ridiculous. Could you not put a state trooper in the middle of the meeting around the next corner? Like, why, why is that never the case? And it's just, it's been challenging to me reading through Jonah because I realize how often my heart towards the lost and the broken and the hurting, and in some ways, hopefully it does look like God. But in a lot of ways, it just, it falls short. So each week we've talked a little bit about, you know, what does God's attitude and heart for the lost look like? We started in chapter one. We said it's really he meets our brokenness with reconciliation, right? That is the, the big picture of when God looks at people, God looks at situations, God looks at us. When we're broken, his default, his base is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reconcile that. I'm going to go to that. I'm going to work with that. We're going to fix that. The call to action that we talked about last week, after John kind of gave a good follow-up to what does it look like to meet brokenness with reconciliation, God's call to action in Jonah 2 is repentance, right? That we move from sin to God via repentance. And we talked last week about, okay, what does repentance look like? What do we mean when we say that word? But chapter 3 is going to be all about the message, church, which is very fitting for Christmas because this tends to be a time, a season, where people are maybe a little bit more open to going to church, maybe a little bit more open to hearing spiritual conversations, spiritual things, because this is a, a time where, yeah, we, there's the term CEO, Christmas and Easter, only for a reason, right? We, we are a little bit more aware of our need and, and our our desire for something bigger than, you know, the brokenness and the stuff we see around us. We're a little bit more in tune with that in, in Christmas, so it's a good time for us to contemplate then what message are we getting across? And as John so, so beautifully put it in week two, not only what are we getting across, but how are we going about doing this? Because both of these things very much matter to the Lord. So Jonah 3 today, church, we're going to see this, okay? What are we getting across? God offers the life, the offers the lost a life of being transformed into his image. That's what God is bringing, putting on the table 
before those who have been broken apart from him and sin. And how we go about doing this is going to be a picture of compassionate discipleship. So, what are we doing? How are we doing it? Let's begin in verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's an interesting gospel presentation. We'll come back to that. Forty days, and you're going to be wiped out, Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh believe God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Lord, we've already kind of tried to humble ourselves this morning by identifying whatever we feel like is, is keeping us from you or the little things that just keep seeming to, to come up or that we keep butting our heads against. But Lord, really, we, we do all of this this morning because we want to have your heart, Father. We recognize now more than ever, there are people who are lost. There are people who are, some are searching, some aren't, Lord. And we recognize that if, if you have, have put us here in the New River Valley, in Christiansburg, the Commonwealth of Virginia, the United States of America, the world, Father, that this is, this is not an accident that when we come to know you, that you turn around and say, okay, now you're going to go and make disciples. And Father, when we get to Christmas each year, we see that you, you have completely embodied that for us by you have gone, you have come down to us in the baby Jesus Christ. So God, we know that as, as we are looking at Christmas, as we're looking at the story of Jonah, your, your heart is always before us, Lord. And we trust you. We trust you this morning that as we undertake that life, as we choose and say, yes, Lord, that is what we want to be about, we will see you do great things in ourselves, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our community across the world. But Lord, to get to that, we have to know you more. Thank you for giving us a moment where we get to dig into your word, just free from distractions, free from cares of this week. Father, we've even tried to give some of them over to you so they're not hanging over our heads as we're here ready to listen to you. Father, keep us in your spirit. May we understand what Jonah is going through and what you're trying to get across to your people. In your name we pray. Amen. Guys, when we start looking at Jonah this morning, the how kind of becomes quite clear. What is God trying to give the lost? Simply, he's trying to offer them a life of being transformed into his image. So, if we dive in in, in verse 1, we see that God comes back to Jonah, 
Verse 2, he says, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. I realize I may have shot myself a little bit in the foot because I've kind of been alluding to the fact that Jonah's not a very good prophet. And he probably does what, what many scholars would say the, the absolute bare minimum effort forth before God. Okay, but, but the one thing Jonah does do well is we're not told anywhere that whatever Jonah says to Nineveh isn't what God told him, okay? So something about what God is going to tell Jonah to tell Nineveh, we're going to assume, okay, that, that must be from the Lord because, because we're not told it's not, and I, I think you'll understand in a second. It's a safe assumption. So whatever Jonah is going to Nineveh to tell them, it's coming from God. What does he say? This comes in verse 4. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Before we unpack this, real quick, we have a, a little bit of maybe cultural baggage we should identify before we dive in this. Because when, when I say the phrase, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, what does that sound like to some of us? Turn or burn, right? Repent or else. We're, we're going we're gonna to completely wipe you out. I mean, turn or burn is just, I, it's all over that, right? Like you, We cannot hear, hey, 40 days and uh, everything's going to be done after that. So that... That might be where some of us are starting to say, oh, that's, uh, that's pretty powerful stuff, Jonah. You are waltzing into the heart of the city saying, hey, y'all are uh, you're on a time clock, so uh, you should, should probably think about that. There's, there's something deeply significant, though, about what Jonah says, okay? The word 40, 40 is a big deal in, in uh, ancient culture. A lot of the old times, you, you read numbers, you see things in the Old Testament that to us, we're thinking maybe a literal 40 days. There's nothing to suggest it's not. But the Israelite culture, numbers meant something, okay? The number 40, almost every time you see it in the Old Testament, it is in context of preparing to be changed by God, right? Moses spent 40 days preparing just purifying, just being by himself to get ready to go up onto the mountain to spend another 40 days receiving the law from God, the Ten Commandments, which is sometimes hard to wrap your mind around because you're like, well, we, could, we can read that passage in like 30 seconds. And Moses spends 40 days with God on the mountain receiving the law. You see that when Israel doesn't trust God after he gets them out of Egypt, they wander in the desert for 40 years. Right? God's preparing them to move in, essentially to move in together, to be living with him. They didn't trust him, so he says, you know what, you're going you're to have to get to know me and my heart a little bit differently first. You're going to have to wait. So they spent 40 years in the desert. Jesus also, if you remember, at the very beginning of his ministry, that whole you know, story where he's tempted by Satan to do these different things, and Jesus says, no, Satan, that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says this, and this is actually what it means. He has that great back and forth. There's a one-sentence, little tiny detail before we get to that part that just says he was in the wilderness alone for 40 days. So the number 40 gets us thinking about God is about to do something. Right? He's going to change something into his image. And the word overthrown, hafak, kind of carries that on. It means to be changed, to be reversed. Literally the idea of you're exchanging one thing for another. So if you remember some of the verses in the New Testament that say, 
uh, you know, we're, we're putting off the old life, taking on the new life. S- same imagery right here, okay? God is telling Nineveh, hey, not so much I'm going to come wipe you out if things don't get better in 40 days, but more so God is saying, I am coming to you so that I can change you into my image. Now, the other part of me is thinking, well, but how would, how would Nineveh have known what this was supposed to be, right? Like, you know, oh yeah, 40, there's significance, the number 40, that's great. That was true for Israel. How did Nineveh know this? And church, this is where, and I haven't really hit on this that much as we've gone through the book. Who is this book for? We've said it's a story about how God treats the lost, that this book is not about Jonah, it's more about God and Nineveh, but who was this book written to? The people of God. When they're reading this, when this story is being told to them, they're going, oh. Oh, that's what God wants. Oh, oh, the, the work that God is doing is he wants to change me to look more like him. And that's why you get this picture in verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. God is going to use Nineveh to show Israel, this is what I've been after the entire time. Right? You see Nineveh and even their king all the way up, the entire nation. Right? They call for a fast the entire city, excuse me. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth. They cover themselves in ashes. They cease from what they're doing. I mean, all of these are Old Testament pictures God's people are going to be very familiar with. They're going to know all of these things. We stop what we're doing. We are repenting of what we're going through, and we are saying, God, we need you to change us. God says this, this is what I'm after, that when I am looking to the lost, I am presenting them with this, this invitation that says, I know you can recognize the brokenness. I know you can recognize something is not quite right. And I am coming to you because I am the one who can take that, who can heal that, who can fix that. I can put your brokenness back Together, God is having to remind his people, he says, you have forgotten this along the way. We'll talk a little bit about more of that in a second. Why is God having to bring this up? But his people have forgotten, church, that this is how God reaches the lost. God shows up and he says, I know you can recognize something's not quite right. So do I. We can fix this. But it's not just a picture of showing up and saying, hey, something's not quite right. We're going to fix this because we could, I could give you a bunch of examples of how we go about doing that, right? Some of you know, based off of you know, other churches you've been at or people you've listened to, there is a, a million different ways you can tell somebody that something is broken and it needs to be fixed. So how we go about doing that also matters. And there's some little clues in here, church, if you read over that you might You might miss it, but God actually does give a very specific way that he is looking to give this message to the lost, okay? Let's go back through the text. You see in verse 2, again, God calls Nineveh that great city. Verse 3, he says it again, an exceedingly great city. I'm not going to harp on that too much. We talked about that in chapter 1, but remember, this is tied to the covenant, Right? When, when God called something great using this word, this is the same language when he gives to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you into a great name, a great nation. God is extending 
the same covenant that he gave to his people Israel, even to the most wicked and vile Nineveh. And, and John beautifully kind of pulled this out for us and said, really, look, look, like what God is doing is he's demonstrating for us the only difference, the only difference, church, between those who are righteous and those who are wicked is, I think, as you put it, John, location, right? Not value, not value, location. God says, look, Jonah, I am capable of looking at those people who are so, to you, so far gone. But to me, they are exceedingly great. Why? Because they bear my image. And so God says, Jonah, first off, the attitude in which you're going to the lost, you remember. You remember, Jonah. Don't you dare forget. They are just as valuable to me as you are. And then you see in verse 9 and 10, I, I love this, guys. What does the king want? Right? What is the king after? When, when God is at work, they're repenting. What, what does he ask? Verse 9. He says, who knows? God may relent. He may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Turn is one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's shub. Which is just a fun word to say. It just means to return or come back to. And that word relent really translates more to be sorry, to have compassion for. So when he says, hey, maybe, maybe God will, will, will forgive us. Maybe God will let us off free here. Maybe, maybe God will just kind of spare us from the destruction. That is true. That is true, 1,000%. But the attitude that the king says is more than just, I want to get out of jail free cards. It's a, I want to be with you again. God, God, I don't know you. This is the first time I'm hearing about you. Please, would you come and be with me? There is this this picture of compassionate but more than just compassion of actual discipleship of saying I recognize my brokenness and more than just wanting grace more than just wanting forgiveness I want to be different I actually want to be changed back into this this image so there's a, a picture of compassionate discipleship that is starting to form and it gets echoed when you start watching how God is at work in this because when God sees this verse 10 when he saw what they did, how he turned from their evil way, he relented. He had compassion. He said, okay, I, I receive your repentance and I'll give you my compassion. And what has he done? You almost miss this. Verse 1, the Lord shows up and tells Jonah, verse 2, go to Nineveh. Verse 3, Jonah rose, he went to Nineveh. Nineveh. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city. God goes to Nineveh. He goes to them while they are still in their sin. He has this, I'm not just trying to tell you how bad you are, to convince you that you need something different. He says, I am coming to you with the offer of walking alongside of you to change you back to how I made you. This, church, is this compassionate discipleship piece. What God does when he shows up to the lost. It says if we can admit that something's not quite right, right? Last week we talked all about repentance. If we can admit something is not right, 
that we need to turn and to come to God. Some of our, our modern language, we would say putting our faith in Jesus. It's kind of the act we would say of how we do this. If we were to put our faith into Jesus, God says, I am now going to walk with you to bring you back, to change you back into my design, to lead you back into my life. God says, my call to repentance, my call to restoration, it's going to come through the vessels of compassion and discipleship. And I, I realize, church, this is kind of where the context of this book becomes so key. Because where is Nineveh in relation to Israel? Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Right? I mentioned this in, in, in chapter 1. Assyria has conquered Israel. Right? God is telling Jonah, the prophet of God's people, to go to their persecutors, to go to their oppressors, to go to the people who have conquered them, who've brought in all their wickedness, they're establishing all their wickedness as the law of the land, and God sends Jonah to go to them with this compassionate discipleship? What? This is not going to change anything. God, what are you doing with Jonah? Surely that's not actually going to work. Surely that's not actually going to change hearts. God, these people are wicked. God, these, these people don't know you at all in the slightest. God, look at what is happening to your people. Why, God, is this how you are telling Jonah to work until you realize, church, that this is not just an example. This is how God has always worked. To just briefly paraphrase for you, we're not going to read all of it, but if you read through Isaiah 53, 52, I think 54 and 55, this, this big long prophecy about Jesus Christ, this Messiah that's going to come, Isaiah reflects back on this time. He talks about when God's people were oppressed by Assyria, and he says, even when you were in that place, God was still at work for you. God was still raising up something for you. And Isaiah dives into this picture of what the Messiah is going to be and what the Messiah is going to do. He says the Messiah is going to be pierced for your transgressions. He's going to be crushed for your iniquities so that by his wounds, you may be healed. That might not be the picture of, of a conquering king we want, church, in our world today. We don't really want to claim, oh yeah, that's my king. You know, the one who died, the one who was crushed, the one who looked weak, the one who at the end of the day looked like he lost. And yet it's because of his wounds, Isaiah tells us we're healed. Isaiah also points out because he poured out his soul, to death, because he was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is in Isaiah 53. Who are the transgressors, church? All of us. All of us. God says, this is how my Messiah is going to work, right? He's going to show up. He will be pierced. He will be crushed. He will pour out his soul to death so that he can bear the sin of many and make intercession. And then chapter 54 is this beautiful picture about how God says, I am going to come and restore my people, right? Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. But notice God then turns in chapter 55 and says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. 
I made him a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. It's almost like God is telling his people in Isaiah. He says the Gentiles are also going to be part of this plan. Right, That this heart, this attitude, this compassion, this discipleship, this desire for reconciliation, God, that you have for your people, that is true for everyone. But we forget that. We forget that, church. And look, that, that's not something that's just specific to some of us. This is, this is always true for us. Honestly, can't tell you exactly where it comes from, but it, it just, it is amazing how often it is so hard for us to reflect the same grace and call to a new life that God has given to us with others. Just like Jonah, we always find ourselves in a moment where we're saying, but God, for some reason, this is not deserving of the same thing that you have given to me. But that's not what we celebrate at Christmas, church, is it? We celebrate each year that God has come to us out of his compassion. He has come to dwell with us. He has come to give us this, this life of discipleship, of saying, if you will put your trust, your hope, your faith, your life in me, what will I not do? How can I not change? How can I not restore? How can I not transform every part of who you are back into my image? And can I not do that for everyone around you? This is our hope. This is the greatest love that has been given to us that we celebrate in Christmas. And so I want to give you two ways to respond to this, okay? Partly why we had these things written down on the paper in front. Because some of us might be sitting more in, in Nineveh's shoes and we're saying, you know what? That's me. Right? Like I, I recognize that something's not been quite right and you know, I've, I've maybe heard about Jesus or I've seen some things about him, but you know, I, what does it mean to put faith or put trust into something? You know, what, what, is, what is this action thing you're calling me to do? What, what happens when I'm saved? What does this, this look like? You know, God gives this, this offer to Nineveh more than just, I'm going to save you. I'm going to forgive you. He says, I'm going to transform you. I'm going to lead you to rebuild your life into my image because, child, that is how I made you. That is the offer. And some of you may say, okay, you know what? I can get behind that. Some of you might be saying, you know what? I, I need to respond just like Nineveh. You know what? The, Nineveh, it, it's a very visual picture if we were to take off our clothes and put on sackcloth and cover ourselves in ashes and just sit and cry out to God, not eating, not drinking. It is a visible transformation that is taking place, church. Some of us might need to be doing that step today. And I want to encourage you, if you're really feeling like, okay, okay, God, you know, I, I, maybe I have given my faith to you at some point. Maybe I've prayed some prayer at some point, but I'm ready. Like today, I am ready to take on a new life, may you receive the promise of verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Some of you 
you've identified there is something that you feel is holding you back. And you've put that down on the paper. May we take it another step further and say more than just let it go, let's take up a new thing entirely. Let's find that in Christ. But some of us, church, are going to be more like Jonah. And to give you a little bit of spoiler, Jonah chapter 4 verse 1, when Jonah watches this take place, we see it, it displeased him exceedingly. Some of your translations may have a little footnote at the bottom. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. Keep thinking, Jonah was put in the place. He had gotten an entire city, three days big. I can't even tell you, I, I can't think of a city in our country that would take, I guess, three days to walk end to end. If you're walking, I'm thinking driving. Picture any large metropolitan city you want, okay? Pick Charlotte, pick D.C., pick New York, something like that. An entire city of people says, we are ready to hear about what God is going to do. We are, we are truly repentant of where we're at. We're ready for something new. And all Jonah can do is be angry because he did not feel like God had lifted him up. You know, we talked about the whole value thing. Jonah says, God, how dare you put them on the same plane? I am a prophet. I have kept myself squeaky clean. And you have now given the same covenant promise and offer to them that you gave to us, Israel. We are the people who are being oppressed here. How dare you, God, be that gracious to them? It's fascinating, church, this entire time, Jonah and Israel see Nineveh as the problem. But this entire time, Nineveh is the wake-up call. Because why is, why is Israel under Assyria to begin with? If you've read any parts of the Old Testament, you know Israel gets conquered, typically, when they have forgotten who God is. When they have stopped trusting, God, you are who you said you are. When, when, when Israel gets to the point where they feel like, thanks God, we've got it from here, right? We're your chosen people, we've been redeemed, we've been saved, you've given us the priests, we've got the sacrifices, we could do all these little things, we've got all these little laws to make sure we, we won't even, God, we, we'll so promise you that we'll never sin again, we'll put all these little extra guardrails in so that we won't even come close to any one of those Ten Commandments that you've given us. When God's people hit that point, God says, oh Oh, that's not what I'm after. And why does God take this so seriously, church? What does he use throughout history? What has he always done to show the world what he looks like? He's always used people. When God created something in his image, he made man and woman, right? He made mankind. Whenever God's people started straying, he sends prophets when they wanted kings, he even sent them godly kings. When he came to us, he came to us as Christ, as a baby church. God has always used people as the ones through whom they would see his image in the rest of the world. So when his people stop looking like his people, God says, I cannot have this. This is my chosen vessel through whom I'm going to reach the world. Nineveh is not the problem. Nineveh is not the problem, church. 
his people have stopped trusting him. And this is why God has to show them, hey, remember what it was like? Do you remember what I'm after? Do you remember what I told you when you came to faith in me? Yeah. Yeah, could it be so crazy that I want the same for everybody else? So church, maybe we need to respond like Jonah and just say, you know what, God, I've, I've written something down there this morning. I feel like I'm wrestling with this. I'm feeling I'm struggling with this. It's, you know, at the end of the day, I don't even know if I'm missing out on opportunities to be sharing you with others because I'm just stuck. I'm just stuck. And God, it is, it is true that the same grace that was given to Nineveh <laughs> was also given to Jonah, right? We saw, him, we saw him protected in the belly of a whale, belly of a fish. We saw him get spout out last week. The same grace is extended to you. So maybe simply if you're responding like Jonah today, you just need to say, okay, God, I know you offered me this a long time ago. I know you, you taught me how to repent. You taught me how to turn from, from whatever I was doing. You taught me to see my brokenness. You taught me to put my faith in your son, Jesus Christ. You taught me to start now wanting his life as a new life. God, I, I see that you've done that. And yet, I'm afraid blank or, or, or something is, some blank thing is happening. And because of that, Lord, I, I don't even know. I might not even be aware, Lord, of if I'm not reaching out to somebody or if I don't have your heart towards somebody because I'm just, I'm stuck. So maybe today you need to take the, the step of Joe and just say, okay, Lord, what is it? What is it? So whatever you wrote down on the paper this morning, take a second and just bring this before the Lord, okay? Go ahead, whatever you need to do, to eliminate distractions. I know this typically we bow our heads, we close our eyes, but we're going to just have a moment to reflect, okay? Whatever you wrote down on the paper, whether you're like Nineveh and this is the first time, or whether you're like Jonah and this is the millionth time, just go ahead and whatever you wrote down, you can say it again to the Lord, saying, God, this is the thing I'm feeling stuck by. This is the thing I'm feeling is beating me down. This is the thing I, I just can't seem to figure out what to do with. Go ahead and just, again, repeat that back to the Lord. And as you've done that, guys, in light of what we've seen today, the same, the same promise from Psalm 107, at the very beginning, how we get to this place. The psalmist simply says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Church, if there is not a situation that should keep us from extending God's grace to someone else, then there's also not a situation that keeps God's grace from being extended to you. So wherever you're at, regardless of what state you've been resolved in, thank God for his goodness, for his steadfast love, and for how these things endure forever.
lastly, if this is who God is, even in light of where we are at, let's commit today to say, okay, God, I see your call. Your call is not just to pick me up and dust me off, although you do that, praise your name. But you're going to set me on a new path. You're going to put me in a new direction. You're going to literally change who I am, but I have to let you. Some of you, is, if you're responding like Nineveh, you may say, okay, Lord, I have never chosen to let you in. I have never asked you to fix me up. I recognize my brokenness. I recognize that Christ is the only way this can be done. Some of you may respond like Nineveh right now. And some of us, church, need to respond like Jonah. We need to say, God, I know these things to be true. How easily do I forget them? I have been made to bear your image. Let me walk with you in that. Some of you might also need to just ask today, hey, Lord, send me somebody who's going to walk with me alongside to do that because it sounds exhausting to do that on your own. In church, we were not made to do that alone. And let's close. I'll, I'll pray this for all of us. We say, oh, God, the author of all good, we come to thee for the grace another day will require for its duties and events. We step out into a wicked world. We carry about with us an evil heart. We know that without thee, Lord, we can do nothing. That in everything with which we shall be concerned, however harmless in itself, may prove an occasion of sin or folly unless we are kept by your power. Hold us up and we shall be safe. Preserve our understanding from the, the subtleties of error or my affections from the love of idols. Preserve my character from the stain of vice. Preserve my profession from every form of evil. Father, may we engage in nothing which we cannot implore thy blessing and which we cannot invite thy inspection. Prosper us in all lawful undertakings or prepare us for disappointments. Give us neither poverty nor riches. Feed us with food convenient for us, lest we be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or be poor and steal and take thy name in vain. May every creature be made good to us by prayer and by thy will. Teach us how to use the world and not to abuse it, to improve our, in our talents, to redeem our time, to walk in wisdom toward those without and in our kindness to those within, do good to all men and especially to our fellow Christ followers. And to thee be the glory, Father, forever and ever. Amen.